welcome to Rising. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with friends and family, or at the very least, with some turkey. Brianna Joy Gray still in transit back to D.C., so instead I am joined by Jessica Burbank, remotely, of course. Hello, Jessica. How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was great, Robbie. How was yours? It was pretty good. I did have to travel on the two big travel days, but I didn't have any problems, and I got back to D.C., and I am ready to dive right into the news. What are we talking about today, Jessica? Well, there's some positive developments to report out of the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. A successful hostage exchange seems to offer the opportunity for a longer ceasefire. The New York Times reported that a third group of 17 hostages, including a four-year-old American girl whose parents were killed in the Hamas raid on Israel, was freed on Sunday, raising the prospect that more captives could be set free and a fragile truce extended. President Biden took some credit for the temporary pause in hostilities and the release of hostages. Let's take a look. For weeks, I've been advocating to pause in the fighting for two purposes, to increase the assistance getting into the Gaza civilians who need help and to facilitate release of hostages. And we know that innocent children in Gaza are suffering greatly as well because this war that Hamas has unleashed is so has such consequences. Meanwhile, the White House seems to be struggling internally with how to respond publicly to the conflict. The Washington Post reports that the division inside the White House is, to some degree, between Biden's senior longtime aides and also an array of younger staffers. Now, many of these younger staffers say the Biden administration hasn't done enough to curb what they see as unjustified violence against the Palestinians. As one commentator put it, Biden has banged BB really hard on settler violence and civilian casualties in private. Biden trying is not enough for a simple reason. The U.S. is the superpower, not Israel. The U.S. gives Israel aid and weapons, not the other way around. Biden has the leverage to stop this, and he hasn't. Full stop. So it certainly seems like, you know, regardless of what your own view is on, on what the U.S. response should be and how they should handle the, uh, the situation with Israel, um, young Democrats seem totally furious. They don't find it acceptable uh, how Biden is handling this, and that could end up hurting him. That could end up, frankly, costing him his reelection, given uh, how precarious his reelection seems to be right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Muslim voters overwhelmingly that showed up for Biden in 2020 also not planning on showing up for Biden in 2024. The youth vote was necessary for Biden to win. He relied on it, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be there when he seeks re-election. Re this is a big reason why. There's all of this talk from people like Nikki Haley and some of the more conspiratorial conservatives saying, oh, well, it's because TikTok is pushing propaganda because it's a Chinese app and they want anti-American settlement. It's just not descriptive of what's going on. Young people are much more critical of the U.S.'s actions abroad. They're posting content on TikTok and getting the same warnings and violations that they would get if they talked about any kind of conflict on TikTok, if not more so, talking about the Israel-Palestine war. It's not good content for TikTok to have on because they're an app, an app that runs off of ads. They want to please advertisers. They don't want the content on the app to be all about what's happening in a war abroad in the Middle East. And so really what's going on here is young people have a different way of viewing this. 
And there's free flow of information on social media. People are learning about the history of the Nakba, that this conflict goes, goes back to 1948. It's not something that started on October 7th. So I think, you know, the youth educating themselves on TikTok, you can say, you know, whatever you want on mainstream or nightly news. The kids aren't going to watch that. They're not going to be influenced by that. What they are influenced by is this new information that they're getting that they haven't received before that they're not getting in school. And I think that's why Biden's losing the youth vote is just because they're getting information that doesn't hold up to the propaganda that's being pushed to them. So I mostly agree with that with the following caveat. We have seen how much secret internal pressure uh, the American government has placed on U.S. Tech, uh, tech companies like uh, X, Twitter under the previous management, Facebook. Um, I've, we've seen the pressure the Canadian government, the pressure the European Union has put on tech companies to engage in censorship and to push, you know, push narratives and storylines that the government wants. Given that we've seen all that, I, I think I, I think I would be totally naive to expect that the Chinese government places no has no push on TikTok whatsoever. Given that China is even more um, autocratic than the rest of the governments I'm describing and is more you know closely embedded in in the operations of TikTok, so I, I don't I wouldn't put it past them to influence what you're seeing on TikTok. But that caveat aside, I agree with you that it, it by and large it is just the fact. It's clearly the fact. I can tell I can tell from my conversations with you and from. From, you know, watching what other people on the left have to say about this conflict, that the the very um, anti-Israel sentiment is not is not being manufactured. It's clearly genuine. So I don't I don't I think the reason you're right. I think the reason you're seeing a lot of that content do, content do well on TikTok is because that is truly and genuinely the belief of young people. I I, I am critical of that belief. I don't subscribe to it, but I it, I can't ignore that it does exist. And given that that is part of the democratic contingent coalition, um, it will certainly um, impact Biden. I mean, of course, I'm sure, you know, some people would say, what if, well, if Biden was to do more of what the pro-Palestinian younger left wants, would he lose um, Jewish voters to the Republican Party? And would that, you know, hurt him more than than the viewer, than the, the supporters he's, he's, he's bucking right now? At some point, I guess that becomes like a mathematics game. Really, he wants to try to make everyone happy. And it seems like, frankly, he's making no one happy. I don't know if he wants to make everyone happy. I mean, you had this deal on the table where Hamas said, in exchange for a ceasefire, we will release hostages. And Israel said no. And then Biden was on camera saying, when he was asked, is there any chance of a ceasefire? None. Absolutely not. And so I don't know if he's been, you know, this this neutral party or someone advocating for a pause for some time, like he said. We don't know what's happening behind closed doors. We know what Biden tells us. And we also know that there's been now a leaked list of weapons that the Department of Defense, under Biden's orders, is sending to Israel. They're sending mortars. They're sending 75 tactical vehicles. They're sending bunker busters. They're sending munitions. There's a ton of, of secret weapons weapons that have been sent to Israel that we wouldn't know about if we didn't have this leaked document from the Department of Defense. This is not normal policymaking from the Biden administration in his handling of Israel, because when we had the, the weapons being sent to Ukraine for the U.S.'s support of the war in Ukraine, you had multiple page, three page fact sheets of all of the weapons we were sending over. It's not typical for the president of the United States to go behind the backs of Congress and the American people to send weapons to uh, our supposed ally 
And I think there's there's a lot of Jewish people that are protesting now. Again, we had Grand Central Station filled with protesters from Jewish Voice for Peace. So I don't really think that he would lose the Jewish vote. I think there are a lot of Jewish people living in the United States that see what's going on in Israel, and they're extremely critical of it because they see this as something that makes the Jewish people all over the world uh, at risk of, of more anti-Semitism, of more retaliatory violence because of how violent the Israeli state is being. There were protesters at Netanyahu's house over the weekend. And I think it's time for a lot of people to start criticizing why were children being held in prisons who were Palestinian by Israel for so long? Why were there people who were held uh, you know, as hostages by the Israeli government for that long to be released in exchange for Hamas hostages? I think when you push such a one-sided story, people become more critical of you when they are on TikTok and they're scrolling, regardless of why it comes up on their feed. But they hear the hostages that were taken by Hamas on October 7th talking about how their treatment was good. And Yosheved Lifshitz was criticized for this when she was released. They said, you're only saying these nice things because your husband is still in there. But now we have a, another group of hostages and their stories are emerging. And they're saying, you know, that they got their medications as needed. They were fed as needed. They were allowed to go about their daily activities. They were not treated brutally or humiliated. And so I think what's going on now is people are consuming all of that information information and saying, it sounds like my government's actually lying to me, which is worse than if they were just telling both sides of the story. Well, and so I think Biden's making some severe miscalculations and mistakes and even probably not taking advice from the State Department, considering uh, the lack of congruency between what the State Department is saying and what Biden himself has been saying about a ceasefire and humanitarian pause. I mean, they were... <laughs> Okay. They were they were dragged from their homes. They were abducted from a music festival. The people around them were shot. Their family members, some of them, it's it's children being held when their parents were killed. Um, look, I'm I'm glad you know Hamas um, gave them their medicine, etc. Obviously, Hamas didn't have an interest in the hostages. It had under its control dying because it wanted to use them as bargaining chips, and that's. Good for the hostages, I guess, but they, I mean, they were hostages because the people around them were killed and they were abducted. So I don't, I, I think it, look, if, if young people on TikTok want to romanticize that story, that's up to them. But I think it's like ludicrous to start celebrating the humane treatment here. Yeah, I mean, when we think about what happens to the Palestinians in the Israeli prisons and the concentration camps that Israeli uh, forces have to push Palestinians out of their home, force them into confined locations in the West Bank, in Gaza, uh, and in the Israeli prisons, where they have many Palestinians that have been there for over a decade. I think that when we compare those two things and we compare the kind of ethnic cleansing that Israel is doing to the Palestinians, uh, it, it doesn't really compare at all. I mean, what Israel's doing and the amount of Palestinians that they've taken, who are children, who are innocent civilians, uh, it's a much greater number than the amount of hostages that Hamas has of Israelis. And a big reason for that is because Israel is backed by the military might of the United States. And I think that's another reason young people are so critical, because they don't want to see their tax dollars supporting atrocities. And so when we think about 2018, when we think about the fact that children who are in Palestine, who are 16, 17, 15 years old, they've lived through four wars already. They have been deprived of food and water many times over. They have watched other civilians die many times over. Hamas is mostly comprised of orphans because their family has been killed by Israel 
as they slowly pushed Palestinians out of their land and continued to kill Palestinians. Now we have the death toll 20,000 exceeding the Nakba. We had the Nakba in 1948, which Israel identifies as their time of independence, but it's called the Nakba, which means the, the great crisis, the great conflict, the terrible thing in Arabic. And this was the time when Israel decided to establish a state and push Palestinians out of their lands. They displaced 750,000 people and killed 15,000. Now we have the death toll exceeding 20,000. And we have the amount of Palestinians dis displaced, 1.7 million. So the U.S. supporting this, I think, is why people are so critical. They see the hostage taking as some kind of retaliation for decades and decades of such cruel treatment of the Palestinian people. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, look, I'm not sitting here, you know, defending what Israel is has done by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I've been very critical of it. I just see a difference between I think one can be and should be critical, especially of the American, you know, funding of just other governments in general without asking any questions, which doesn't make America safer. I think it's important to be critical of that while still being clear-eyed about the reality of Hamas, but that's why we have the discussion on the show, and we'll have more rising right after this. House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner praising Speaker Mike Johnson for releasing Capitol footage from January 6th, calling the move an important step toward exposing the truth, according to The Hill. He said, quote, when you see the footage yourself, it's going to give you an understanding of what was there and what occurred that day, because we're currently only depending on really partisan descriptions of what happened. Now the American people can see. House Republicans are revitalizing their focus on January 6th as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene calls for a new select committee aimed at investigating the members of the bipartisan panel that conducted a probe into the attack in the previous Congress and reached, quote, damning conclusions about Trump's role in orchestrating the violence. Elsewhere in Trump land, the former president has threatened to tap a special prosecutor to, quote, go after President Joe Biden and his family fueling alarm from many scholars and ex-Justice Department officials, Harvard professor and co-author of Democracies Die, Stephen Levitsky, likened Trump's actions to authoritarian regimes, saying, quote, this is one of the most openly authoritarian campaigns I've ever seen. You have to go back to the far-right authoritarians in the 1930s in Europe or in the 1970s in Latin America to find the kind of dehumanizing and violent language that Trump is starting to consistently use. This all comes as a recent Emerson College national poll shows that Trump leads Biden by four points in a hypothetical general election matchup, with Trump at 47 percent and Biden at 43 percent. Now, as for the Republican presidential primary, Trump leads at 64 percent, Nikki Haley currently in second place at 9 percent, Ron DeSantis at 8 percent, Vivek Ramaswamy at 5 percent. Um, you know, I always say this whenever we talk about the mainstream media's need to castigate Trump as this unique authoritarian demagogue. Um, mostly they're just pointing out the things he says, which I agree are crude and often mean and are not, you know, things that I would want a presidential candidate to be saying. Uh, that's been clear not just for the last year, but like for the entirety of Trump being on the political map. Uh, but they describe him as this just unique threat to democracy and civil society at the same time that, but Trump is the one who is being prosecuted, who they're attempting to put in jail in four different jurisdictions, um, in part for his speech, in other places for things that, 
may be completely legitimate and reflect um, election malfeasance, and if so, he's doomed, and that's fine. But you know, he is he is in the midst of being persecuted. They describe him as as like he's doing this to other people right now, when actually he is the target of a criminal effort to put him in prison. Yeah, I think Trump's statements about the election, you know, not being legitimate in 2020, shows that he doesn't have a lot of respect for the electoral process. But when we talk about a well-functioning democracy, I think it would be more accurate if people held those same criticisms for people like Joe Biden. I mean, 66% of the country, when they wanted a ceasefire, he was saying, absolutely, we won't have a ceasefire. President Biden has not done anything to significantly represent working class people in a way that's meaningful. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck. And I think when you have the government not representing the majority will of the people, you don't have a functioning democracy, and, and Joe Biden's guilty of that as well. Democrats are guilty of that as well. I think the fear of Donald Trump is because he says the quiet part out loud and people aren't used to that. Uh, I think also his distrust in the electoral process uniquely makes him someone who is a threat to democracy. If he's going to question all of the elections and rile up his base again, if he doesn't win in 2024, that would be, I think, a really scary moment for our country. But most working class people see that nothing fundamentally changes. You have these candidates come in, promise the world to them, and then their lives don't change materially whatsoever. They're still struggling, living paycheck to paycheck. And so I think maybe the prosecution of Donald Trump is what's turning him into an authoritarian. He would probably rather have control of the courts in the United States of America and maybe their prosecution of him to the extent uh, that it's been is what is making him uh, espouse these things that are categorized as authoritarian. Maybe we're making an authoritarian by prosecuting him. It can be very annoying to have the Justice Department after you. But listen, I think he's thought he's he's above the law for far too long. And I really think what's going on right now is that neither party represents the interests of the American people or, you know, it represents a, a well-functioning democracy. Totally. And the media is just is clearly trying to scare people away from Donald Trump. Like, you, you know, you can do anything you want, but you, you can't support Trump because he's so scary and he's he's so bad and he's so authoritarian. It's just not working. Like he's a, he's ahead of Biden right now in, in the poll, not just the overall polls, but in the key swing states that Biden needs to win to be reelected. Like nobody believes this anymore. Um, they may, And that's not to say that they endorse or like Donald Trump. They're just over the idea that that they'll be living like in hell if he becomes president again, because they care, just as you say, about the economic reality. Some of them care about uh, foreign policy. Some care about all, all sorts of issues that matter to Americans. And this very abstract Trump's rhetoric threatens democracy. But again, you are the you people making that claim are the ones right now persecuting a political figure, Donald Trump. You might say that it's legitimate, but that's like that's beyond the point that then if, if then you're saying, well, OK, sometimes it's legitimate to persecute political figures. Well, OK, then what's the point of of leaning into this rhetoric that that, that per, political persecution is so beyond the pale and you can never do it. Well, you are doing it right now. So I think it's totally implausible. And and it's it's similar with that line there that we you know, we covered the idea that you know Trump's going to persecute Biden's family. Like that is such a that is that is clearly we're talking about Hunter Biden here and what we're actually talking about is a legitimate inquiry in whether the president's son was being used by business interests in Ukraine and China and elsewhere to in, 
influence U.S. public policy. Whether Biden knew about that, to the extent he was involved in that with the meetings that he attended and listened into, um, the, the story about that censored on X uh, after federal, uh, censored on Twitter at the time, after federal intelligence officials had warned social media companies about foreign Russian malfeasance and then defended it as bearing all the hallmarks of foreign Russian malfeasance. So like, that's what we mean by, by you know, looking into people's family connection. It's corruption. We're interested in whether there is verifiable corruption here. And to just write that off as, oh, no, this is an attack on Biden's family, nobody believes that anymore. I think when we look at Trump and the criticism he's gotten for having Jared Kushner get, you know, billions supposedly from the Saudis, and you have people say, this is so outrageous. What an yeah. insane- Oh no, they're going after his family. How dare they? <laughs> yeah, I think like, like people are focusing so much on Donald Trump, like, oh my gosh, how could Jared Kushner take this money from the Saudis? Clearly there's deal making going on with the Saudis who are not great people. But then we look at Joe Biden, who right now- uh, if you're a Palestinian American and you're living in the United States, you're literally watching Joe Biden give permission to Israel, hugging Netanyahu, while families are being slaughtered, entire bloodlines are being lost. And I think they don't really see much of a difference between those two evils. If you're someone who is just a regular person, you're not someone who has always voted with the Democrats, you're not a Democratic Party consultant. You don't really see actually a big difference between a candidate like Donald Trump and a candidate like Joe Biden. And I think that's really a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people who are members of the political class. But look at how much of a plurality of the vote Trump is getting in the polls in a general election. He's holding half of the country. People need to look within themselves and say, huh, there's a reason people like this guy. I think he talked a lot about anti-corruption in the United States, about ending the bureaucratic control of governance. He talked about draining the swamp and unrigging the system. People realize that the system is rigged. And yeah, is Donald Trump a great guy? No. But is Joe Biden either? Are the alternatives that are being proposed by the other party of our two-party system, the Democrats, that much better? And to most American people, there's, there's not a better alternative there. Uh, their lives wouldn't fundamentally change one way or another. And I think that's why so many people are OK with voting for Donald Trump, because they were basically told to leave the Democratic Party by Hillary Clinton when she called the Donald Trump supporters, the white working class supporters that were attending the rallies deplorable. Uh, they were told, you're basically not welcome here. You're not valued. We don't really see you as a good person. You're deplorable. That's an extreme statement to make. A lot of people left the Democratic Party because they feel they were left behind, and they were. Yeah, absolutely. We, we should mention, uh, you know, we started the segment off talking about the new January 6th footage. Look, I think it's so important to make this available to the public so people can judge for themselves. Um, that is not to excuse any of the bad behavior that did go on that day, uh, people being legitimately charged, in my view, for breaking and entering and other crimes. I am absolutely fine with that. But what went on there was used to indict an entire movement, an entire swath of people, and to, and to 
described them not just as rowdy or smashing windows, but actually as terrorists. And, and some people who weren't even there were charged, got the terrorism enhancement for what happened. So given that, that people are going to go to jail for 20 years for the events of January 6th, which again, to be clear, were very bad, and people should be people, I'm not for smashing windows of storefronts or Capitol buildings or people's houses. I want crime punished and dealt with. So I'm absolutely fine with that. But terrorism? Is it terrorism? Well, let's see the footage then. And what the footage shows is that a lot of people there felt like they were being they were being escorted by the police. The police weren't doing anything. They were on a tour of the Capitol. Again, you can make fun of them. You can say the people who did do, uh, who, 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 who did face public property and who fought with police, absolutely I want them to get um, uh, prison sentences. But this was made to be the most like evil, odious attack on America since 9-11. And you know, the, a lot of the footage we're seeing doesn't look like that to me. So we will continue to look into that and we'll have more rising right after this. The COVID-19 pandemic may have officially begun in late 2019, but according to new reporting from Vanity Fair, secret warnings about United States-funded research in Wuhan, China, came long before. Emails obtained by Vanity Fair reveal communications and cooperation between American and Chinese scientists. Now, executive director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, Asha M. George, says, quote, if you want to know what's going on in a closed country, one of the things the U.S. has done is give them grant money. Now, this really interesting investigation by Vanity Fair has found nearly a decades-long trail of warnings issued by the Department of Energy to other government agencies, including the National Institutes of Health, regarding risks that the United States-funded biology research could be misused by overseas partners. Joining us now to discuss this reporting is contributing editor at Vanity Fair, Catherine Eban. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be back with you, Robbie. So give us the highlights in your new report, which I encourage everyone to read. Uh, you know, for those of us who are very concerned about the safety standards at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this seems like more confirmation that U.S. officials all the while um, were, were, have, been, have been saying, for years have been saying there are concerns here. So what my article uncovers is a almost decade-long trail of warnings issued by the Department of Energy uh, to the National Institutes of Health and other government agencies about the risks of what's called dual-use research of concern, that um, biology research that was being funded by the National Institutes of Health overseas could be misappropriated and possibly used for harm. Uh, but those warnings got even more specific um, as close to the pandemic as mid-2019, when the Deputy Energy Secretary, Dan Boulette, uh, warned um, a, an associate and advisor to um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, uh, specifically about the coronavirus research that was being funded at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, you know, the concern was that there were basically tools and techniques being used uh, in that research that could be potentially misappropriated for uh, military use or for malign use uh, by the Chinese government. Uh, so I think it, what's significant here is that, uh, you know, that research as well as the kind of research being funded was really of contention 
for almost a decade before the pandemic even began. Yeah, you point out in your article that it was it, it, this isn't just U.S. officials, that um, Canadian officials were concerned as well. And in fact, that the scientists, the Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, I think your article says that they admitted they thought their own technicians were not adequately prepared or that they didn't have enough of them. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is really surprising. I mean, the um, an, an, a National Institutes of Health associate got an early tour of the Wuhan Institute of Virology's BSL-4 lab. She went in um, in the fall of 2017 and was basically told by scientists there that they didn't have sufficiently trained staff to operate the lab safely. Um, but there was another stray comment that was made, which actually alarmed her more, which was that the um, the WIV, as it's known, was considering doing uh, reverse genetics to create a bolus samples because they couldn't import those uh, from overseas. Uh, and there was a decision made to not share that information with other U.S. government partners for fear that it could spark alarm and um, and basically uh, dismantle the collaboration that they were trying to build with the lab. Yeah, there's another part in your article where uh, where uh, Francis Collins, one of our head um, federal government scientific um, experts is getting warnings from the Department of Energy and says that he, he feels like they he, he his little his line is you got this out of a movie this reads like a movie script and and the other people in the meeting were were kind of shocked that he he was so uh, dismissive of the threat level and you know these are p the people who are at the top positions for signing off on what research gets funded and, and where funding is allocated. Yeah, so this was in uh, the fall of 2016. This this battle that occurred was during the final days of the Obama administration. So the concerns that were being flagged were really bipartisan. You know, they they cut across party lines. And basically what you see in that confrontation that I documented is two very different perspectives on how to do cutting edge science, you know, with a group of scientists who are absolutely committed to global collaboration, which is crucial, but another group of uh, US government scientists flagging the concerns about the risks of that science being misappropriated. And I think in a way that conflict uh, helps us underscore some of the challenges of trying to understand what has gone on since the pandemic occurred. So, of course, the Department of Energy, in addition to, I believe, the FBI, are the two federal agencies that have concluded a lab leak is a is a the, the more compelling, you know, with low confidence, but is the more mm -hmm. compelling explanation for COVID's origins uh, compared to other agencies who prefer the uh, the wet market origin theory. You know, reading and and I I would like I think a lot of us would like to know you know what the Energy Department's evaluation is based on. I wonder personally. 
personally if they have or someone in the government has more information about those three scientists at the lab who have been alleged by The Wall Street Journal and others to have been early COVID cases, which really would be a slam dunk if that could be shown. Uh, but of course, you know, we haven't seen any of the intelligence if it leads to that interpretation. But my question is, you know, given the Department of Energy's long history of warning about these kinds of things, does that give them even more credibility now in terms of their evaluation that that is a, that that is a truly a compelling um, origin story for COVID? Well, you know, one of the very interesting issues in all of this is that the Department of Energy changed its assessment from essentially undecided to low confidence favoring a lab leak. And uh, it was questions about why they shifted their assessment that sort of launched me on this reporting in which I uncovered all of these uh, previous warnings. But I think it's interesting to note that the Department of Energy has um, been concerned. Their scientists at Lawrence Livermore Lab and in other places has long been concerned that the U.S. government lacked capacity and tools um, to really assess if something is genetically engineered. Now, one of the things that apparently um, the Department of Energy's scientists determined is that it could not rule out the possibility that the SARS-CoV-2 sequence had been engineered. Um, basically, it's scientists working at different labs tried to rule out that possibility and could not. And that is one of the things that influenced uh, its assessment. Yeah, you point out that this the, the concerns have been bipartisan. Obviously, President Obama paused gain-of-function research, although we know that um, some of it was still greenlit under um, exceptions that were permissible uh, by uh, Dr. Fauci greenlit some of that uh, funding himself. And then now, obviously, it has taken on this partisan valence as Dr. Fauci has become very much an, uh, a villain for the political right. Uh, Republicans mm -hmm. seem much more interested in, in pursuing the possible lab leak scenario right now than Democrats, e even though, you know, as I just pointed out, President o Obama thought gain-of-function research carried some risks. So, so what, you know, what is it going to take for, uh, for Republicans and Democrats to work together to solve what is really not a, a, a partisan yeah. political question, which doesn't put one side or the other in, in, in more trouble? You know, if anything, this is about holding um, perhaps individual um, scientists and government bureaucrats accountable for bad decisions, and more than that, putting in place protocols to make sure nothing like this could happen or could happen again. Right. I, I think, as you say, the political valence here has really prevented uh, a more straightforward look at these questions, both, um, you know, by Congress, um, unfortunately by Democrats, um, and also by the media. Um, and th there is nothing that should be partisan about any of this to, you know, uh, examine the origins of COVID. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has said all hypotheses remain on the table. Um, so really, the question is um, disputed, unresolved, and I think that politics has interfered with the more uh, straightforward assessment of some of these questions. Mm. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Please go read her report in Vanity Fair if you haven't. Catherine Evan, thank you. Thank you.
Palestinian men are receiving medical care after being shot in Burlington, Vermont on Saturday evening. The students were walking on Prospect Street while visiting a relative in Burlington for Thanksgiving when they were, quote, confronted by a white man with a handgun, according to a release from the Burlington Police Department. The three 20-year-old men were identified as Hisham Arwatani, Kinan Abdel Hamid, and Tassin Ahmed, all of whom study at three different universities in the United States, including Brown, Haverford, and Trinity. According to the police department, two of the three students were wearing kafeyas, traditional Palestinian scarves, and the students collectively were speaking Arabic. Two of the victims are in stable condition, while one has sustained uh, more serious injuries, the release says. A suspect was arrested on Sunday in connection with the shooting. 48-year-old Jason J. Eaton was detained Sunday afternoon near the scene in Burlington. While authorities say there's no additional information to suggest the subject, suspect's motive, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee said, quote, we have reason to believe that the shooting was motivated by the three being Arab. The University of Vermont says it has, quote, no indication the shooting is connected to the school and that it is saddened by the incident. The FBI said it is, quote, prepared to investigate what took place. So, so we're out of time. Where yeah, there's a rise ahead, yeah. in Semitism and Islamophobia in the United States. And I really see situations like this, where you have a 48-year-old man, Jason Eaton, in Burlington, Vermont, very far away uh, from Israel and Palestine, who feels threatened, who feels angry, who feels aggressive, that he needs to commit an act of violence against three men who are walking to Thanksgiving dinner. And I think the this is a consequence of the rhetoric that we have on mainstream news, on conversations, on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, about what's going on in the Middle East. And they say things like uh, all of the Palestinians that are living in Gaza should leave, and if they don't leave, they are Hamas. You have the Israeli state, who is an ally of the United States, pushing rhetoric like all Palestinians are guilty. I think that kind of rhetoric leads to consequences like this. I think the Muslim boy also being killed in Chicago uh, is the direct result of the kind of violent rhetoric, the dehumanizing rhetoric that we have just on cable news. It's absurd. So I, you know, wish for a speedy recovery for the three victims. Um, this individual should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, should be in prison uh, for doing this. Um, I don't know what his motivation is, and I don't particularly care, because regardless of what the motivation was, you can't shoot at people, um, and he should face the consequences of that. I'm perfectly willing to believe it was anti-Arab or anti-Islamic um, bias. Um, that, again, perfectly plausible to me. And if they want to have a hate crimes investigation, um, fine. I'm not uh, particularly, again, I don't, <laughs> I don't really care. I would prosecute people, again, for the fullest extent of, to the law of for attempted murder, regardless of what their motivation is. Um, so his mother says, uh, the mother of the alleged perpetrator says that he's um, mentally ill, which is so often um, the case in these shootings. So look, I don't know if he's mentally ill and the flavor of his illness has taken on racial bias and he decided to do this. Um, I'm, I'm a little suspect of the dangerous rhetoric explanation. Um, there isn't a whole lot of ideologically motivated violence in this country, frankly, given how heated our rhetoric is. Um, very seldomly do people stab or shoot each other um, because 
they hate each other for their um, for their views or their ideology or because of some broader conflict going on in the world. Um, usually they far more often um, attack people for domestic violence or workplace violence or for crime or gang violence or or mental illness. Um, so I'm I'm very I'm real he hesitant, reticent about blaming rhetoric because then a lot of people will will swoop in if you start blaming rhetoric and saying, well, what do we do about rhetoric? Do, does the first amendment should the first amendment have limits? How many times do we have to have this conversation where someone starts proposing um, um, censorship in response to concerns about heated rhetoric? Look, I, I think it would behoove everyone to cool it with their rhetoric. Obviously, I don't support likening all the Palestinians to Hamas. In fact, I think a lot of the Palestinians are victims of Hamas, a regime that they have not um, voted for, most of them, uh, the, an autocratic regime that has not held elections. Um, so I, I don't con condone any of that kind of rhetoric anyway, but I, I think we ought to be careful about casually associating it with real-world violence. I mean, particularly, time and time again, we see that these are mentally ill people, um, and uh, th that seems to be the most relevant factor for a lot of these killings, frankly. Uh, attempted yeah, killings, I should say. We read the manifestos of so many people who have done racially targeted mass shootings. The shooter in Buffalo wrote a manifesto in which a lot of what Tucker Carlson was espousing on Tucker Carlson tonight about the need to have uh, more white births and that the country was being taken over by people of various races, that the pop the makeup of the population was changing, this kind of racial anxieties has been sown on cable news networks like Fox. And I don't think it needs to be the kind of situation where a law is proposed uh, or rather Congress decides, you know, we need to limit some kind of free speech about what's going on in conflicts abroad so that we don't have these actions of violence. No. But if someone is a news reporter and they are fed this very one-sided rhetoric where when Palestinians uh, are, are killed in an attack by Israel, it's not reported as Palestinians die in explosion. It's reported as an Israeli airstrike killed Palestinians. When you have Hamas going and killing many Israelis on October 7th, that should be reported within the context of a conflict that has lasted hundreds of years instead of framing the situation as Palestinians are extremely dangerous, that they hate Jews, that they want people in Israel to die, and Israel is our ally. I really think the necessary context is a responsibility of journalists, that you need to hear out both sides and report on the truth, not parrot the sentiments of an extremely right-wing genocidal regime in Israel. And I think a lot of that kind of responsibility went out the window when the FCC uh, ruled that there's no more uh, Fairness Act, that the Fairness Act, which was something that Reagan pushed to be overturned, was no longer at play in news. And news could simply be propaganda. I think a lot of the responsibility in journalism went out the window. And so this is not the kind of thing that's resolved by law. It's something that's resolved in the court of public opinion. And I think everyone, when you see the kind of Islamophobic violence taking place, one child stabbed, four people shot, including a woman who was a doctor in Texas, I think now we have to consider, okay, what has contributed to these sentiments growing in the United States? And I think a huge part of that is the kind of conversations that are had in the public arena and on mainstream news. I mean, but it's just, there were 250 murders in D.C. this year. It's the, our highest 
total in a long time. It dwarfs last year. Um, doesn't get talked about nationally. Um, the, the reasons for it and whatever solutions are being analyzed is 250 people. And no one seems to care because wasn't because of ideological reasons. It's garden variety crime. It's uh, mental illness. It's poverty. It's gang violence. And for some, that's not interesting to people in the same way that, that presumed or alleged ideologically motivated violence. The tiny sliver of crime that falls into this category is exhaustively discussed at a national level because we can, you can try to blame Tucker Carlson or, or Israel or, 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 what, or, you know, when it happens with a deranged left um, identified person as it does now that you can blame, you know, uh, pro-choicers or you can blame climate extreme or, uh, you know, uh, um, anti-green uh, movement people. It seems like, to me, it seems like displacement. And, uh, and I, I think the responsibility lies on the people who commit the crimes, as is in this case. Um, so I'm, 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 we disagree on that. And also, I'm, I would not be happy to see a return to the Fairness Doctrine, which was stipulating that media companies had to give equal time to the other side, which is, which is actually kind of myopic even to think about now, because, I mean, we're, out, we're outside the side. <laughs> I want news that is outside the sides, the narrow confines of Republican versus Democrat, which isn't even, sometimes that's not even different. That's a, that's a consensus. And for, for the government to the, be the one deciding, well, this is the, uh, we, this is the contrasting perspective we want you to bring, that seems like an absolute recipe for disaster. Actually, we have a healthier media environment now with no fairness doctrine, right? We have, and we have social media, and we have all these media companies all over the spectrum, right, left, et cetera. I mean, you were just talking about in another segment how well the young left perspective on Israel-Palestine, how it's thriving on social media. I mean, like, you know, giving people the, the tools to talk and present the news on their own has, to my mind, led to a, a lot of um, ideological diversity in the way the news is presented, more so than the government trying to say, okay, well, we'll spend this much time on this subject from this direction, and then this much time on this subject from another direction. I mean, that was, that was not, um, for my mind, to my mind, that was not the way I want things done. Yeah, I don't think that it's a, a binary of the media environment we have today and then the pre-fairness doctrine overturned media environment, right? I think the fairness doctrine didn't forbid independent journalists from doing their work. The fairness doctrine was something that was regulated by the FCC, which applies to the kind of news corporations that are now not held to any sort of uh, regulatory you know, pressure to ensure that their reporting is true, to ensure that their reporting is not misleading, to ensure that their reporting is not misinformation. I think there needs to be some more regulation for what people consume, believing to be news, uh, when it's not news. We need some regulation to determine, okay, how are we going to ensure that what people are getting is the truth? And it could be the truth with an opinion. It could be the truth with a particular kind of bias, but it still needs to be true. And it still needs to tell a story that doesn't intentionally leave out facts to paint a particular narrative. I think that there needs to be some kind of role that the government has in, in regulating this, whether it be the kind of community notes approach where when you're telling a story and you're leaving out certain facts, you can say, you know, this story was told with solely reporting from the Israeli government or the IDF or the Netanyahu regime and the Biden presidency. I think there needs to be some way for people to be able to filter out the news that they're getting in a way that is fair. And it might not be what the Fairness Doctrine said, but it can't be absolutely nothing at all where the media landscape becomes the Wild West 
that is mostly controlled by billionaires like Rupert Murdoch, who can control multiple papers and determine what the narrative is on very many issues. We have a monopoly of the press now. I don't think it's much better. I don't think independent journalists have as much power uh, as the media monopoly that we have on cable and nightly news. And so we have a lot of stories being run on the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States. But to my knowledge, no one who is Jewish has been stabbed or shot after October 7th. And so there's an outsized focus on anti-Semitism. When one child has been stabbed and killed, a woman doctor has been shot, and now three young people going to Thanksgiving dinner have been shot as well. One of them is in critical condition. And so I really think we need more of a focus on what's really going on in the country and not having so many stories left out. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I think the accountability is exactly what we're, what we're doing right now, what, exactly what you're doing, challenging things you read and see in different media outlets. I, just, I think, you know, like I'm not for uh, media outlets getting things wrong. I just think investing the government to have some kind of the, the FCC to control or to, to try to decide what is misinformation, I'd be more horrified of that than anything else. And in fact, we've seen a lot of the, for instance, the bad moderation decisions made by social media companies dictated to them ex precisely by misinformation czars, people who got it more wrong than anyone else. So I'm for just, I'm for a hands-off, let everyone flourish, let people criticize each other. And I think we're lucky to be living in the best environment for independent media, frankly, that has that has ever existed. And maybe it can be even better, maybe 10, 20 years from now, we'll, uh, we'll talk about how this was a very censored or uh, stifled uh, environment compared to what the future holds. I hope that's the case. But uh, we will continue to report on all this. Let us know what you think about, uh, about these subjects, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Are the walls crumbling at the House of Mouse over woke politics? Dizzy's new SEC report seems to indicate that may be the case. The company acknowledged that it was facing a, quote, misalignment with the general public over its ESG policies and that consumer perception of the company, based on their political statements, presented risk to our reputation and brands. Disney's reckoning with so-called woke messaging comes as other brands, including Bud Light, Target, are facing financial consequences from their policies, with conservative groups claiming credit. Here to discuss whether ESG or woke messaging is responsible for these financial hits is Will Hild, executive director at Consumers Research. Will, thank you for joining us. Robin. So talk to us about Disney first. Um, there's a perception that things are really a mess there. Um, do you actually put it on the actions of conservatives ex you know, expressing their frustration with, uh, with perceived wokeness at the company? I think what conservative groups like ours have done is really just help give a voice to the frustration of millions of consumers that are dissatisfied with the products that Disney is putting out. I, I, what's been incredible about this pushback on Disney, on companies like Anheuser-Busch and Target has been, you know, not that there's been a single leader calling for a boycott or calling for changing purchasing decisions, but that consumers have just had it with, you know, basically being insulted by the very companies that are supposed to be serving. I think Disney is a you know, exhibit number one in cases of this type of behavior. So talk to me about ESG. Explain what that is. And, you know, is this just a case of companies are adopting policies? Uh, if consumers don't like them, they don't have to engage or use the brand and, you know, let the market decide. Well, ESG is billed by its supporters as a, as a style of investing, but it really is 
is a stalking horse for large asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard to push far-left folk politics on corporate America using public pension dollars. You know, BlackRock being one of the largest investors of public pensions, state, local, even federal. Um, and they basically use money that's supposed to be handled in a politically neutral, completely focused on returns. They've now used ESG as basically an excuse to push their own personal politics. But what's so interesting about this latest disclosure that Disney just did, where they said, basically they highlighted for investors that they're having some issues with disconnecting with consumers over their far left woke politics, is that that shows just how much of a lie this entire ESG movement has been because the entire excuse for asset managers doing this was saying, listen, we're not actually playing politics with your money. All of these things are in the long-term financial interests of these companies. These are all the directions in which the market is going. We're just helping push these companies to get there sooner. Well, Disney is proof positive that that is not the case. Look at this company, it's gone woke, its movies are woke, uh, all its advertising has gone woke, and, and it's crashing and burning. So it, it really puts a lie to the entire ESG scam. Are shareholders upset about these policies, given that if they're if they're harmful for, uh, for you know for the health for the business climate of the company, you'd think they're losing money. They ought to be speaking up. Yeah, well, you're seeing you're seeing a lot of uh, large asset holders. I think the state of Florida is actually in, in the state of suing uh, Disney over over their misuse of corporate assets to push far left woke politics instead of serving their consumers the way they're supposed to. So absolutely. Uh, uh, shareholders are, are pushing back. And some of the largest shareholders of these big public corporations are, are now, on, because of the large size of the funds, uh, public pensions themselves. And so you're starting to see, you know, government entities push back on this as well, because they see how it's hurting returns. You know, Disney's stock has basically been trading flat for the last five, six years. They're, they're down uh, a little bit over five years, over a period in which the market has, has risen precipitously. So it's absolutely hurting the returns for shareholders, and, and increasingly shareholders are dumping the stock because of it. I've heard some commentators express the idea that we have now surpassed uh, peak wokeness, and we're kind of going down the other side. Obviously, wokeness is a you know broad descriptor. I've actually we've had guests on the show struggle to define exactly what it is. You know, I, I think of it as these kind of very socially, culturally progressive norms around speech and identity and behavior being enshrined and um, and and forced on others. And if you don't abide by them, you're you're canceled or you're or unpersoned, or you could be fired, or you could lose your opportunity. Obviously, this is a very broad descriptor of, of what's going on. Um, I've seen, you know, we've seen some, maybe it's anecdotal, you know, it's hard to tell what the numbers for any of this actually is, but companies resisting um, calls to, for Netflix, um, what, what, that was a while ago, maybe, maybe a year ago, telling people who work there, look, sorry if you don't like the kind of comedy that um, Dave Chappelle represents, this isn't a good place for you to work, we're going to feature, you know, controversial, provocative content. Um, there were a couple examples of things like that suggesting to me at least that perhaps companies are now realizing that following their most progressive employees down this rabbit hole is not actually good for the business. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think we may have seen peak wokeness. I'd say we're still in the early innings of this fight, probably the second or the third inning. But the momentum has certainly shifted towards focusing more on consumers and not wasting time and energy, you know, basically just ticking them off. But there are some you know, notable pushback. Target CEO just came out a couple weeks ago and basically lied about a lot of what uh, went into their controversy earlier this year around targeting kids with LGBTQ-themed products. 
um, and, and you know, tuck underwear for bathing suits for for children. So there, there is going to be a give and take, I think, over the over uh, you know the next few years. A big battle is is basically underway. But the momentum, you know, three four years ago, there was basically no one pushing back. The, uh, every corporation seemed to be you know falling all over itself to adopt whatever the newest woke trend was. And that's no longer the case. I think companies are are more reticent to do so. I think when you'll really see this uh, this trend end is when these companies start to dump some of these you know DEI style either the, the department or the employees themselves. I mean, case after case, what we see is it's often uh, a minority of employees within the companies who are pushing them to go in a far left direction. We saw that with Anheuser Busch with the marketing director uh, who basically hated you know had said basically on video that she thought very little of the existing drinkers of Bud Light. Um, and I think these companies are learning the hard way that when you employ people like that, and even more so when you listen to them, uh, really all, the, all that you're going to get for it is, is punishment in the market. Well, in, in the case of Target, um, I mean, are, are, are conservatives who are boycotting Target saying that they don't think you know, the products you mentioned should be, should be carried at all? Is there a difference between that and the Budweiser example where it's you know, frustration with a, with a marketing campaign that seems seems very ill tailored to the product or is, is actually has contempt for the for the people who are consumers of the product versus a target where it's like well you know if you don't agree you don't like those products you don't have to buy them uh, but do, do you think that the pushback is actually saying no target shouldn't offer those kinds of things well you know that's going to differ depending on the consumer what i would say is you could go a step farther and say if you don't want those products offered you don't have to go to target which is what consumers have been criticized mm -hmm. by CEO, by the ceo of target for for doing is just simply taking their business elsewhere and he accused them of creating an unsafe work environment for the first time in their company's history, which is rather laughable because they've just fresh off of having to close a number of their stores because of issues with violent crime in some of these inner city uh, areas where they're having a real resurgence of that here in the last in the last few years. So yeah, I, I do think it differs depending on you know which company you're talking about. I do think there was an issue even at Target with targeting kids. The, the displays that were of question were right next to or, or even incorporated with uh, 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 displays for products for, for children. So people felt like the, their kids were being targeted. And certainly with Disney, that's the case. That's mainly the products they make are, are targeting children and, and the movies that they make, they've increasingly in, uh, you know, included uh, woke nonsense in is, is targeting children. So I do think that is part of what really ticks people off is when they feel like that their own children are being targeted by these companies. But again, you have Anheuser-Busch where you know, clearly the company just didn't think much of its own customers. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Russell Brand blasted the Pentagon after recent reports that it once again misplaced funds. Surprise, surprise. Let's watch. The Pentagon have just filed another audit. The Defense Department's taking a sizable chunk of your paycheck. However, it's unable to prove how it's actually spending those tax dollars. For the sixth year in a row now and counting, the Pentagon has failed its yearly audit. I think after a while you're going to have to stop auditing them. It seems pointless. Are you going to do an audit this year? I'm sorry, it's just another blank form from us. We're working on improving our process. Well, I would think so, given that you can't pass an audit. Doesn't that seem extraordinary that a department that's responsible for world events, significant world events, wars, at a time of escalating war across the entire planet, can't account for where the money is going? Doesn't that seem extraordinary to you? Almost unacceptable. Asked by a reporter when the Pentagon expects to pass an audit, Singh said that she can't predict the future. It's not the future. This is not... <laughs> so you're basically asking me to predict the future. Well, not really. I'm 
I'm asking you to sort of, when the money comes in, uh-huh, just write that down, good. And then when you sort of spend it, okay, God, yeah, well, just write down where you spent it. Mm, no, I can't listen. I'm not magic, okay? I'm not got a crystal ball here. And if we did have, we'd take that damn thing and we'd throw it straight at Moscow. But when the Pentagon did, she would let them know. It's kind of actually resorting to sarcasm. Why are they 14 year old kids? It's like mean girls running the Pentagon. Stay free. See it first on Rumble. It was a very effective, hilarious, justified skewering of the Pentagon filling their sixth straight audit. Um, you know, there's so much to say about this. The government can't keep track of the money it ships overseas for foreign policy, for war making. Um, this, the government wouldn't let you get away with this, wouldn't let any person, um, U.S. taxpayers get away with this. We get audited for our screw-ups, but the government, um, it doesn't matter. They can misappropriate as much funds as they want, and they never get in any trouble. Um, Russell Brand points out how the officials basically in charge over there don't even care. They're not phased by this at all because they know there's not going to be any accountability. And it's just, it's accepted as kind of standard operating procedure for our government to spend our money and not even be able to keep track of how it's being spent. And we don't talk about this as a crisis of democracy, but isn't it? How can we, how can we as voters exercise control over our government? They can't even tell us how and where and why they're spending our money how are we able to put in accountability and say, well, we want money spent for this purpose, but not that purpose? We can't even do that because they won't even be honest with us or themselves, frankly, about how the money is being spent. Yeah, this British guy is more outraged than most Americans are about this regular catastrophe. Sixth audit in a row. And it's not like they didn't try and track down the assets and the liabilities. They have $3.8 trillion in assets and $4 trillion in liabilities. They had 1,600 auditors and 700 site visits. That is insane to put in that much effort. Just imagine how expensive that was to try and track down where all of the money is going. That's insane. And they still failed the audit. It's absolutely absurd. I think that the Pentagon shouldn't be allowed to get more money until they pass an audit. It is unreasonable in a democracy, you're right, Robbie, to have the Department of Defense and the Pentagon be given this amount of money for what? For for giving weapons to our allies that we're going to find out through leaked documents when we read Ken Klippenstein on The Intercept? I mean, seriously, what does an American citizen have to do to understand where public dollars are going, especially when they're going to, to wars, to potentially supporting acts of violence that will then put us at risk of retaliation. I really think that's the consequence of this, because other countries, especially countries in the Middle East, hold the United States accountable morally for who we send weapons to and what they do with those weapons. If we're living in a democracy, the people our government serves should be accountable to us and how we feel about that happening, because that absolutely puts us at risk as well. So I'm very grateful for Russell Brand who is not, I don't think he's an American citizen, perhaps he is, but he definitely grew up in the UK because he has that accent and he does a really good American accent when he's interpreting the Pentagon. But it's not just a blank sheet, like he said. They put in a great effort and still couldn't track the money down. So it's good he's pointing this out. Yeah, you talk about some of this money going toward weapons to our ostensible allies, but and time and time again, we've seen how well, well, then once those weapons are out there, they're not tracked. They don't necessarily go to the appropriate people. And in fact, terrorist groups 
Well, and sometimes that we were allied with at the time, right? We were allied with Osama bin Laden in the in the Cold War, and then uh, he turns around and launches a terrorist attack against the United States. Uh, but we have, you know, we weapons that we left in the Middle East with again so-called allies were p then picked up by the Islamic State. So that's you know, with, with the actual when it when it's turned into resources, those get misappropriated and lost as well. But but here we're just talking about even the funding, just the funds that buy those things. Um, the receipts aren't being kept in any acceptable ledger. You mentioned 1,600 employees doing this audit. That's so many, so many government employees to ultimately produce an agency that is not um, that is not meeting its basic financial responsibilities, its responsibilities to the American taxpayer, because this is our money. It's taken from us at. Like it's not—it's not voluntary whether you pay taxes or not. Your, the money's taken from you, and it's spent towards X, Y, and Z purposes. And there's no way to hold them accountable if we don't know what they're doing. So I was glad to see um, Russell Brand making fun of them um, there. And uh, this, as you point out, this entire matter needs more attention. I know it gets written about at Reason, a libertarian publication where I also work. The Intercept has done great work on uh, on this topic as well. I really hope it's front and center in, in people's minds as they as they consume the news and try to hold the administration accountable. It's you know it's six years, so it's not it's certainly not beginning with the Biden administration by any stretch of the imagination. This is as bipartisan a problem as you can have, or a, rather a a problem created by both parties in equal measure, something that should frustrate all Americans, but um, is just um, maybe is not a sexy enough story, but certainly it's an important one. Yeah, when I think about, you know, the lawmakers that are trying to do something about this, there was proposed legislation. It was a bipartisan bill. But basically they said, if you're the Pentagon, you have to pass an audit in the 2024 fiscal year. But the penalty is they would have to give back 1% of what they were allocated. That is so much smaller than the average tax penalty of unpaid taxes. That is insane. 1%? They would gladly give the 1% back and just not even pay 1,600 auditors. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And now they're saying also, as a part of this bill, that it should be an independent audit. And if they don't have a clean audit, then they get the 1% back. So it's just a ridiculous situation. Does that mean that now Congress is going to have to allocate money to the independent auditors? Also, do they have the security clearance to be doing any of this? It's just a, a problem with no obvious solution other than we shouldn't be giving the Pentagon money if they can't account for where it's going. And this just tells me, someone who studied CIA history and what the National you know, Security Administration is up to on a regular basis, uh, that a lot of these weapons are going to support covert operations. They don't want the American public to know about it. Obviously, that's not why they're telling us. They very clearly have the technology and personnel to be able to account for all of these assets and liabilities. Is that they intentionally don't want to. That's very obvious to me. That's a great point. Thank you so much. We'll have more rising right after this. Elon Musk touched down in Israel this morning after accusations of anti-Semitism on his platform X. Musk met with Benjamin Netanyahu, where Israel's prime minister took Musk on a tour of Kibbutz Kafar Azal, one of the sites of the October 7th attacks by Hamas. The two also spoke on Twitter Spaces. Here's some of that. Yeah, it's it's important to pair firmness uh, in taking out the the, the terrorists, the, those who wish 
or intent on murder, and then at the same time to then help uh, those who remain, which is what, also what happened in Germany and Japan. Exactly right. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because uh, this is quite a rare thing in history. Um, usually, the victor uh, pillages the you know the, the loser, um, and uh, and um, if you look at it after World War One. You know, the Treaty of Versailles was a big mistake, um, and it created immense bitterness in Germany, and it's part of what led to World War II. And then World War II, that people realized, listen, we we actually need to rebuild the economies, and instead of uh, Punish. punishing them. And so, you know, you had the rebuilding of Japan, rebuilding of of Germany, and much of Europe, and. Um, and then we've we've had peace and prosperity for a long time. I think that this is possible, but it has that uh, small small uh, prerequisite. I'm saying small, and uh, I don't really mean small. It's a big job of getting rid of Hamas, which we will. And, and remember that what Israel suffered on this ignominious day of uh, October seventh was proportionately like twenty nine elevens. So, you know, when people right. just make a ceasefire, sure. and Hamas says, well, you know, if we're, if we're still around, we're going to do it again and again and again. That's a direct quote. Yes. Uh, okay, so would you would you make you don't need, You don't need to read between the lines. No. You I can mean, just read yeah, the lines. They're, they're, they're quite explicit about it. Yes. So, obviously, we can't do that any more than uh, America would make a ceasefire with Al-Qaeda after 9-11. Yeah. And this is 29-11. Uh, so, so, they have to go, and they will go. I'm talking about combatants, I'm talking about terrorists, mm -hmm. I'm talking about terrorist chieftains, uh, but then I think we can build a different future with the, the Palestinians. What's your reaction to that, Jessica? I find it incredibly strange to hear someone like Netanyahu, who has the blood on his hands of 20,000 people since October 7th, giving a lecture about people who are supposed murderers and terrorists. It just he is a murderer and a terrorist. And then the other reaction I have is, why is a billionaire conducting foreign policy on behalf of the United States? No one appointed Elon to this position. No one elected him to this position. He's just a powerful guy who runs a media company. And that means he's allowed to have this conversation with Netanyahu. I get that you can have a conversation with whoever you want, but let's not be mistaken. Netanyahu is only having this conversation with Elon Musk because of the outsized power Elon Musk has, because he has hoarded billions of dollars. And so I really think that all of this is incredibly dystopian and incredibly disappointing. If there's one thing that's good that comes out of this, it's how critical Elon Musk has been of Israel. I just wish he was critical of Israel to Benjamin Netanyahu's face or to his voice through Twitter spaces. I wish Elon Musk had said, you know, Netanyahu, I'm going to quote myself from earlier and ask you, for every Hamas member you kill today, how many more do you create? For every Palestinian you kill today, how many more do you create? That's something that Elon Musk said. Elon Musk has been very critical of Israel, just not to Netanyahu's face, apparently. So the whole thing is just incredibly disappointing in my eyes. What's your reaction, Robbie? Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I really enjoyed that clip from Elon when he talked about uh, the dangers of going too far here and actually creating more terrorists than you're taking out of the equation based on what's going on in Palestine. I thought that was a pretty appropriate warning. Look, I think Elon's 
frankly, his, you, you, you can say, you know, what right does he have? He's just a random guy with a lot of money. I've thought in the past, you know, fine, but his foreign policy judgments have been more in line with, um, with you know, me on the kind of anti-interventionist um, right, the kind of friendship I'm trying to have with, uh, with anti-interventionist people on the left. Um, Elon has brought some of that energy to the Russia-Ukraine conversation and at times to the Israel-Palestine conversation. You're right, he should have challenged um, Netanyahu on it. And I'm also worried that, in, you know, in this quest, you know, he's got, X has gotten accused of you know, being just just having tons of anti-Semitism on the platform. The groups making those accusations, the um, the media matters and um, and the uh, other uh, other anti-Semitic hate crime tracking organizations, uh, the ADL, uh, Anti-Defamation League, have a very bad track record, in my view, of honestly tabulating hate crime. So I don't really trust them when they tell advertisers that X is overrun with anti-Semitism. I, I don't, like, I don't de facto believe that claim. Um, but they really have impacted X's bottom line by getting all these uh, these advertisers to disinvest. And so now, will does Elon feel pressure to walk back his free speech commitments in order to fight, you know, fight anti-Semitism on the platform. Does that actually mean just fighting criticism of Israel? I'm sure Netanyahu would, would like that too. And so that is worrying to me because he clearly is coming under a lot of pressure to police more speech, to police speech that is clearly legitimate. I think the phrase, um, you know, from the, from the river to the sea is, is not one that should be used, but absolutely it is within legitimate discourse to say that and to share that on Twitter. And he said recently that he wasn't going to allow users to do that. Uh, again, I think that runs up against the free speech commitment. So, you know, I don't envy him facing a lot of pressure from a lot of different very powerful interest groups who want him to fall short of ironclad free speech commitments. Um, and, but I, I worry that he, he will cave uh, and has already done so, given all of that pressure he's facing. I can see a world where Elon Musk moves a little bit more towards, is this the kind of community we want to have on Twitter? He doesn't have to be the public square. He can just run X like any other social media platform where there are community guidelines. And sometimes these community guidelines, actually oftentimes, they are abused, they are misused, they're not perfect. But I can see a world where Elon Musk is like, okay, if you want to talk about, you know, doing extremely violent things to a minority group of people, this isn't the place for that. That's not the kind of website we want this to be. If you want to have a meaningful conversation, if you want to talk about from the river to the sea and what that means, and even if you support it, you can post it. But I think maybe drawing the line uh, around calling for violence would be a, a good thing to do to create a safe platform for discussion, because it sounds like Elon Musk is very much anti-violence. And so I think that's fair. I appreciate your point as well about Netanyahu probably deeming anything that is anti-Israel to be anti-Semitism, which just is, is ridiculous. And it's an idea that's held by the Netanyahu regime and government, but it's not an idea that's held in the hearts and minds of many Jewish people across the world and even in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu is someone who said if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. But if the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu believes that the existence of Israel depends on the violence of the Israelis, that they need to be violent to maintain the state. They don't want Arabs in Israel. They want this to remain a Jewish ethno state. They're not warding out violence. What they are doing is being violent in establishing an apartheid state 
where they intentionally keep out people who are Arab, people who are different from them. And so to have a, a country that's predicated on violence, I think, makes him a very violent person. And so I think Elon Musk talking about the violence of Hamas terrorists, he should also say, you know, we need to be able to have conversations about the violence uh, of the Israeli state. Is that terrorism as well? I think it is when you kill 20,000 people and displace 1.7 million people. And so Twitter can be a place where you have those conversations and they're not anti-Semitic. It has nothing to do actually with Judaism. It has to do with the violence of the Netanyahu regime and the violence of the Israeli state. And those two things are different. And I think those two things being conflated and censored is very dangerous. More rising right after this. Lack of enthusiasm for the two likely 2024 contenders is palpable. Here's what Utah Senator Mitt Romney's thoughts are on the presidential race. Who do you like in the Republican field? Uh, anybody. Um, you know, I, I would uh, I'd be happy to support virtually any one of the Republicans, maybe not Vivek, but uh, but the others that are running would, would be acceptable to me, and I'd be happy to vote for them. I'd be happy to vote for a number of the Democrats, too. I mean, it would be an upgrade from, in my opinion, from uh, Donald Trump and, and perhaps also from uh, Joe Biden. Look, I like President Biden. Um, you know, I, I find him a very charming, engaging person. There's some places I agree with him, but most places I disagree with him. Uh, I think he's made all sorts of terrible mistakes, but uh, I, I would like to see someone else run. So uh, that was picked up, obviously, by, um, by Vivek Ramaswamy, that uh, Romney basically said he'd support anyone but Vivek. Um, I think that's pretty telling, um, you know, from the Romney perspective. It's really personal, I think, for Romney, his feud with, uh, with Trump. Um, he, you know, he says he also doesn't like Biden's policies, but it's, you know, it's not clear what policy break he wants to make from the current establishment. Um, you know, Vivek obviously has a very different foreign policy from a lot of the people on the debate stage on the Republican side, including Nikki Haley, with whom he sparred a lot over U.S. commitment to funding endless war in Ukraine, also to some extent Israel, although uh, Vivek is somewhat supportive of continuing to fund Israel, uh, not nearly as supportive as Nikki Haley is. Um, so it's interesting. You know, Romney is not a popular figure on the right anymore. It's, it's in fact, he's, I think, widely despised by kind of MAGA people for perceived betrayals of Donald Trump. No one's really, I think no one outside of the establishment media at this point is really calling for him to weigh in. But it's interesting regardless. What's your takeaway? I'm trying to figure out why Romney maybe chose Vivek as the one candidate he didn't like. And a part of me is like, well, you know, Romney's a Bain Capital guy. He was big in management consulting, capital investments. And then you have Vivek Ramaswamy criticizing Vanguard State Street, BlackRock, calling them the worst cartel in human history. I think the beef could be ideological, but I also think it might just be because Vivek is a bit annoying. I think being likable as a candidate is very important. Being someone people want to listen to is important. And Vivek is a little bit insufferable, just a little bit cringe. And I know that it's a very basic take, but I think that could possibly be why Romney does not support him. But I do think that there is a group within the Republican Party that likes Romney, that appreciates what he says. You know, these kinds of more mainstream conservatives 
that have been on occasion never Trumpers. But for Romney to say that there's no one in the Republican field he doesn't like besides Vivek is surprising to me. I was expecting him to say something about not wanting another Trump presidency, about not wanting, you know, the controversy, about a return to normal conservatism. But we didn't get that from him. He said he really likes anyone besides Vivek, which was surprising to me that Trump wasn't a name that was discussed right afterwards. Yeah, I, I'm sure I, I would I would guess that Vivek, at least among real conservatives, Vivek is more popular for sure than Mitt Romney. You're right that Mitt Romney is enduringly popular uh, among the kind of you know, very small, never Trump contingent that is at this point just basically Democrats. Actually, Romney said he would, right, he would rather vote for a Democrat than uh, than Vivek and certainly than Donald Trump. Romney also in that interview said that um, he thinks independent candidates are, are a bad idea. They're likely to elect Trump and that that would be devastating for the country and the character. Um, I find that interesting because, to some extent, it's just not true. Uh, we have an independent candidate in the race, RFK Jr., whom polling so far has consistently showed is um, is is chipping away not at at Biden's support, not helping to elect. Trump, but actually hurting Trump a little bit. And again, to be clear, I think that's fine. I think as many independent candidates want to run, that's absolutely fine. No one is 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 owed your vote. If RFK Jr. costs Trump the election, so be it. If he costs Biden the election, so be it. Don't care. I'm totally fine with it. But right now, it certainly is the case that the main independent candidate is hurting Trump a little bit, hurting him more than Biden. So Romney has that, like, just that's just factually not true. That's totally backward. <laughs> and we also have Romney when he said he's not running again, basically said, you know, we need someone younger in office. But he doesn't want the young people to pick them, evidently. R Rami is still in the political conversation. He says he's not running for office, but he's definitely still running his mouth. For him to say that we shouldn't have an independent candidate is him basically saying, you should have a younger candidate, but from one of the main parties, either a Democrat or a Republican, not an independent. So basically he wants it to be a young candidate, but not someone picked by young people, because that's exactly what this is. Young people like independent candidates. Young people don't really appreciate the mainline Democrats. They don't appreciate the mainline Republicans. I think it's it's kind of naive to say something like, you know, we need a young guy in there. We need to make room for young people, but not expect young people to be a factor in the decision making process and who that candidate is. It feels very paternalistic. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, young Republicans, I think, like Vivek, I think he speaks their language better in terms of, um, uh, well, for not just foreign policy, which I already discussed, but also uh, cancel culture. He and um, people like Candace Owens have uh, have denounced some of the ex extreme deplatforming efforts um, uh, considered or countenanced by conservatives in response to the anti-Israel uh, protesters, where Vivek and Candace Owens, for example, said that's going too far. You know, let's criticize them, but you know, let's not unperson them. We don't want that to happen to conservatives either. I think he gets, you know, obviously he's been a leader on the anti woke discord. Um, I think he better understands where the the young right vote is at. Um, I think he gets that a lot better than a Mitt Romney type person or than any of the other people, frankly, in the race. Your Nikki Haley's, your Chris Christie sees, your Chris Christie sees. I, I just pluralized uh, Chris Christie's name in a way that was interesting. Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis and Trump. What's that? He's multiplying. There are multiple Chris Christie's. Yeah, we're, yeah we'll avoid the any uh, further joking in that regard. Um, so anyway, if, if you... 
are interested in what Mitt Romney has to say. Also, of course, he, he sounds like he's ruling out an independent bid for the White House himself. You know, that gets talked about him teaming up with Joe Manchin and having this kind of um, centrism candidacy for, I don't know, for absolutely no one, for people who just want centrism. I don't know that I don't know that, that kind of voter exists outside of cable news or establishment media or, or and so on. Um, but at, Rom at least according to Romney, that's not going to happen. And you have Nikki Haley climbing in the polls up at 9%, showing against Joe Biden she would likely win. Um, I think that's fascinating. I also think it's fascinating that you have a candidate like Marion Williamson showing that she could win in a general election, also climbing in the polls, not that much a part of the conversation. But Mitt Romney is, of course, the kind of guy to say, well, independence, bad idea to run independent candidates. But he's also the kind of guy to completely dismiss a candidate like Marianne Williamson. He wouldn't be happy with a Marianne Williamson candidacy. And it's not really about the partisanship. It's not really about how he loves the two-party system. He loves the power of centrism that the two-party system provides. He would hate for Marianne Williamson to be up in the polls for the Democrats and to be the likely nominee. These kinds of candidates that are very centrist, that are very free market candidates, they want corporations to continue buying up our land and resources and selling them back to us at an extremely high rate that is just bankrupting working class families. He doesn't like the candidates that stand against that. Like I said, he came up through Bain Capital. His way of thinking about politics is very much tied to economic policy making. You can't divide the two. I think that's a big reason why he's critical of anyone who's a little bit more radical than the two-party system because they threaten the status quo. And so I think Romney, in his heart of hearts, wouldn't love a Democrat, Marianne Williamson, just as much as he wouldn't love an RFK Jr. independent. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this. New friend on TikTok sees young women sharing their Islam conversion stories as a result of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. For the Daily Mail, recent converts say the conflict, which began with the murder of 1,200 Israelis on October 7th, is becoming a driving factor for their decision to the, join the Muslim faith. Experts suggested for many the choice is the ultimate rebellion against the West. One critic of the decision by these girls to convert is Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ali joined Dana Prino on Fox News to argue that the girls are completely confused about their identities and that they're throwing away their freedoms. Ali recently had a come-to-Jesus moment herself, converting to Christianity for both spiritual and civilizational reasons, she says in an essay published on Unheard. She writes, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discovered a little more at church each Sunday, but I have recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. So she was uh, Islamic and then an atheist and now Christian. Uh, Jessica, you are much more active on TikTok than I am. Are you aware of this conversion trend from Gen Z women on uh, TikTok? I am. I've seen some videos about, you know, the interpretation of the Quran and how what is happening currently 
uh, with Israel's, you know, attack on, on Palestine being something that was predicted by the Quran. I've seen a lot of TikToks about this, about people explaining, you know, that this is what the Quran says and that justice will come and actually Palestinians will be okay and we'll be able to live in the Holy Land again. Then you have also very many people talking about, you know, this being the end times, very interesting religious conversations happening among young people on TikTok. But I think for me, uh, there are a lot of young people that are not encouraged to explore different religions. Religion has traditionally been something you inherit from your parents. And so I think many people have different ways of connecting spiritually and exploring, you know, if you want to join an organized religion is something that all young people have a right to do. Of course, there's this questioning of, oh, is it just anti-Americanism? No, I don't think so. I think people, you know, becoming more aware of the Quran and becoming more aware of Islam is, you know, just a, a side consequence, just a, a very neutral thing that has happened. And if people want to convert to Islam, they should. They have the, the freedom to choose their religion in this country. I don't think we should assign everyone all of the, the, the sins or the crimes of what people have done in the name of religion. For example, you know, the Crusades. I think that there are very many people who have done very bad things in the name of God or spreading religion, but I don't think we need to assign the religion with all of its interpretations when someone practices it and make them accountable for it. Yeah, I mean, well, true, I, but I would extend that not just for Islam, but for Judaism and Christianity right. and Hinduism and all the others. Look, yeah, I, I don't care. People can... They can convert um, if they want to. I mean, I find it a little, I guess, a little confused in the same way that the whole queers for Palestine discourse was a little um, confused in that Islam is not exactly, or some strains of Islam are not exactly tolerant of um, other lifestyles, um, sexualities, um, things of that nature. I, there's a weird, like, I mean, religion in general, and this is not unique to Islam, obviously. This is true of um Christianity and other religions, but that they're not, you know, they're not um, necessarily socially progressive. So I, I think that was at least part of the um, kind of laugh at these people' expense that maybe the Fox News crowd was having that they're converting to some fundamentalist tradition without understanding that it won't be totally endorsing of their lifestyles. Um, which is kind of a rich criticism coming from Fox News in the West, right? I mean, Christianity has also been widely interpreted as anti-LGBTQ. We have a lot of anti-transgender, genderqueer uh, sentiments in the United States. We have a lot of people, uh, you know, the state of Florida, for example, they don't want children to be able to read about gay kids in schools. I mean, this sentiment is not something that is unique to the Middle East. It's widespread in the United States of America. As someone who grew up LGBTQ in this country, I can tell you most of my life, I was not out even though I knew I was gay because of how people around me talked about LGBTQ folks. A lot of the most hateful ones were Christians. And so this is not something that I think is unique to Islam. It's not something that I think is unique to any religion. I think it's you know unique to people who are scared of people who are different from them. Uh, and who appreciate the more, you know, traditional Christian way of life, the kind of Puritan way of life that this country was founded on, which was very anti-queer, anti-LGBTQ. So I think that there are many people who practice Islam who are queer, who keep their faith uh, and maybe disagree with the interpretation of the faith. And I think that's fine. I don't think it's like a rebellion against the West to become Islamic, but I'm not surprised that the Daily Mail would write something like that. 
Right. I mean, there, there's no, there is, I mean, there's persecution and then there's, um, you know, there's the explicit um, criminal penalties, including death, right, for people who are LGBTQ in some places in the non-Western world that is um, very serious uh, that I think should be, you know, recalled even as we question or scrutinize Western practices falling short of some ideal for sure, um, it's not as bad. I mean, this comes in every time, you know, some there's some boycott of some U.S. state for having like a religious freedom thing where, you, you know, you can't compel a baker or a, to serve you a cake of your choosing or something because they have religious um, protection rights, something I support. And then they, they, there will be boycotts of, um, of, you know, places like Disney, for example. Um, and yet there's no, you know, are there boy, are they, they're still running cruises and trips to, um, to Caribbean island nations where gay marriages are protected. Um, still have, fi having financially involved, uh, financial involvement with, um, Asian and Middle Eastern countries where, um, where gay people can actually be killed and have been killed. So it just seems hypocritical at times to when there's like too much criticism of the West on this front. I support tolerance. I support gay marriage. I'm a social liberal on these matters. But um, but I also support, um, you know, uh, um, small businesses' rights not to um, in engage, not to be f compelled or forced to engage in, um, in uh, business or artistic expression in a way that, you know, violates um, their held beliefs. And it seems like people get really in the, in the, people, liberals get really upset about that while overlooking some much more heinous abuses elsewhere. Well, I mean, sodomy was illegal in the United States until, you know, into the 60s when my parents were alive. Sodomy was illegal in the United States. There have been plenty of, of laws that were made in the West that are very anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ laws, especially in majority Catholic states uh, in Latin America, in Spain, for example. There are a lot of anti-LGBTQ sentiments that lasted well into my parents' lifetime in Western countries that were translated into actual laws with punishments, uh, including prison time, lengthy prison time. And so I, I do think that when you have a group come to power who is a part of a particular religion, Sure, they can say my religion is why I am against this happening, why I'm against people, you know, being queer, whether it's gender queer or uh, their sexuality. But I really think that we can't assign that as the ideology of the entire religion. There are many Christian and Catholic leaders that use their faith as the reason they would like to push anti-LGBTQ plus policies. Does that mean I think everyone who's a Christian hates the LGBTQ community and they can't possibly be a practicing Christian or it's hypocritical or even comedic? I really don't. I don't assign the actions of the Israeli state to the Jewish people just like I don't assign the actions of Hamas to everyone who is Islamic. Um, and so I, I really think it's important to separate those two things. But I think people coming to Islam and learning from the religious teachings of Islam is good because we really don't have that in schools in the United States. And so again, TikTok is becoming this platform where kids are getting a glimpse of the world that they can't get here in America. And maybe we should teach a little bit more about Islam and the history of it in the same way in world history we teach about the Crusades and the spread of Christianity. All right, that does it for us for today. Thank you so much, Jessica, for filling in. Brianna will be back tomorrow. 
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere you can find podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you back here tomorrow. Bye.